0: This emerges, I think it will be much more distributed, not necessarily all based on centralized models of things, but rather these collectives, these groups that coordinate and socialize with each other across large spectrums because of what technology allows us to do, and then begin to develop enough um, connections to each other to be able to sustain it. This is a podcast called
1: Walk, Talk, Listen. Hey everybody, this is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen, and as always I'm delighted with today's guest who will introduce himself. Uh, David, please go ahead.
0: Yes, Maurice, it's great to be with you today uh, and to participate in these conversations. So, yeah, My name is David Vasquez-Levy. I serve as president at Pacific School of Religion, uh, a seminary and center for social justice in Berkeley, California. Uh, I'm... In terms of my own story, I'm, I've been, most of my work and life has been at the intersection of academic, community, social change, and faith communities. Mm-hmm. I'm originally uh, from Guatemala uh, and have been in the U.S. most of my adult life. Uh, but I'm, in many ways, what defines me is I'm a MUT, uh, hybrid, uh, whatever language you want to use, Mr. <laughs> Sake, it's a mixture of both uh religious traditions. Uh, my dad's side of the family was Lutheran, my mom's side of the family Jewish, and I've grown up with both and often say, I can't choose grandmothers. So both of those uh, communities, traditions, are very core to who I am, both in how I live my life, practice my life, what informs my life. Uh, and in this intersection of, you know, what what is the academic work we do to understand, to acquire knowledge, to share knowledge, to create access? Uh, and how does that knowledge have an implication right like that's a, a core part of what my work is uh, and in particular conviction that religious communities have a significant role to play both in the creation of knowledge and practices and in the implementation of that knowledge um, and a particular place where that matters to me is around people on the move uh, migration has been uh, part of my own life story and uh, not only is my family's history shaped by displacement, mobility, migration. Uh, the makeup of my family is quite diverse. My children are originally from Ethiopia. My wife's family is Finnish, and so we are uh, really a joke that our family is connected by love and coffee. You know, coffee <laughs> is originally from Ethiopia. Uh, Guatemala grows the best coffee in the world will argue that with anyone. <laughs> and Finns <laughs> drink the yeah. most coffee per capita in the world. More well,
1: that's than du- the Dutch? That's, 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 <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do. Like <laughs> every
0: year, you know, with the cow. They are I don't know how, they I, count how many cups of coffee people I, I
1: didn't know that. That's great. <laughs> hey, David, talking about the move. um So how old were you when, when you moved from Guatemala to, to the U.S.? I just turned 17, so I okay. uh, grew
0: up in Guatemala uh, during the period of civil war. Uh, you know, most all of my upbringing, uh, some people may be familiar with the narratives of uh, Central America. So Guatemala is in Central America. Uh, and. Like many areas, and you know, people talk. Uh, you know, we often refer to the Cold War. The Cold War wasn't cold in uh, Latin America and Asia. You know, that's where a lot of the conflicts uh, between this ideology, sort or of, at least the way they were perceived of communism and capitalism, when in reality it was a proxy war for control. Uh, and but they were fought in 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 Latin America. And so I grew up in the middle of that in Guatemala, uh, and then moved uh, uh, right after. High school, um, both out of a desire to pursue my own education, but also, you know, just given the conflict within the country and violence against some of our family members, we, uh, who were very involved in religious communities around advocating for communities, uh, ended up uh, having to, to to move.
1: And do you still have family over there, or or? Uh, everybody. Yeah, pretty much here. all of my
0: family. Uh, you know, uh, I have one brother in Florida, uh, a few cousins that okay. uh, you know, remained here, but uh, most everybody is uh, is in Guatemala.
1: Mm. Okay. So, do you yourself? Uh, do you see yourself? You know, really staying in the U.S. or you know, What will well, happen ultimately with you? <laughs> it's you been think? over
0: thirty-five years now. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. my yeah. kids are here. My fat wife is uh-huh. here. So, we go back and forth. Uh, to visit family but mm-hmm. you know my my work my life really has been shaped here in part because you know when I when I initially came out of the you know just I was young so I was trying to I, I'm not totally sure what I was thinking you know I just sort of showed up mm-hmm. and thinking I'm going to go to uh, honestly I at that point I had a desire to to become a pastor that was mm-hmm. what was driving me and both the conflict as well as the opportunity you know kind of I felt well uh, I'm was looking at ordination in my or pursuing leadership within the Lutheran tradition, even though I maintain both Jewish and Lutheran identity. And so was trying to figure out where, you know, where was it that people prepare Lutheran pastors? So, <laughs> and then a number of other factors, that's how I ended up in the US. But my idea originally was to return to Guatemala. Uh, but as I got here and became really involved right off the, uh, you know, early on, uh, with immigrant communities here. Uh, there are now over a million Guatemalans living in the US, uh, but many other immigrant communities. I really kind of found myself uh, called into that work with those who are on the move in this place so that I felt I could continue to serve the community best that I'm committed to um, uh, for those of us who are sort of in exile or displaced.
1: I, you you made quickly a remark in terms of you know you always wanted to go into the direction of becoming a pastor uh, you know that most most kids I know want to become a soccer player or something right so so tell me about it how did that happen because was there how old were you when you were thinking like yes this is the direction that I would like to go
0: well, you know, it's a little unclear. I'm sh- I am I never did dream of being a soccer player. It was probably mm-hmm. more like, you know, something with music. I was, a, mm-hmm. you know, i studied classical guitar. So probably yeah. that was in the book yeah. at some point. I studied computer science early on in my life. Mm-hmm. So I did end up doing my undergraduate degree in computer science. So I remember typing. My grandmother had been a, uh, an administrative assistant in, uh, for, you know, in, in a company. And so she had a typewriter, <clears throat> you know, a, I remember my brothers and I sitting down and typing little cards for ourselves, you know, our business cards, and mine was for a <laughs> software engineer. So <laughs> so I think it was always that element, you know, I, yeah. Yeah, computer science and math, and that's always come in handy. But in terms of my own calling to ministry, you know, that's mm-hmm. very religious Christian language, particularly. Yeah. My mother claims that when I was about five years old, I would talk about becoming a rabbi. I don't remember that. The early part of my life, I was more involved the and more active in the Jewish community, lots of other factors you know led me to be more involved in the Lutheran side of my family uh, and I think what what came to me around this desire, this longing to to, to pursue leadership in the church was my experience uh, as I was entering high school and just becoming much more aware of what was happening politically and socially in the country. you know you as a child, uh you know people who grow up oftentimes in 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 periods or in areas of conflict uh your parents protect you from that you rationalize a lot of what's happening and you know as a kid this is just what you think it is what it is right like you not necessarily have awareness or critique of what's happening or understanding the larger forces behind it but as you come of, as we come of age you know and religious traditions mark that coming of age in various ways you begin to to be a to pay attention to what's happening and become more exposed to uh, what's really happening around you and asking deeper questions. And so as I was doing that as a teen in middle school, uh, I began to, my, my grandmother lived in a rural area, and so we would go visit her in that part of Guatemala, an uh, area called Sacapa. and that's where a lot of my dad's cousins were pastors. They they But they were serving in rural communities, many of them fairly remote, And in those communities, the faith community was really everything. What people familiar with liberation theology might think of cult-based communities, these Mm -hmm. communities didn't call themselves anything specific. They were just, is that in these rural areas, the church was the only social organization that was there. So they organized around everything. That was the place where you organized around political needs, around marking, life, death, Mm -hmm relationship, education, uh, you know, advocating. And in the middle of the civil conflict, uh, the the civil war in Guatemala, uh, then these religious communities and the leaders, uh, many of them, my my dad's cousins, were very active in that. So what what I desired at that point was basically Mm -hmm. I saw uh, in those communities uh, a type of leadership that really was very integrated, that connected all these different sectors, Now at Pacific School of Religion, the term that we use around this work, as one of our colleagues calls it, creating a duct tape free zone, a duct tape free zone. Mm -hmm. So in most of our life, we have to duct tape our various commitments. You know, I work, I don't bring in my values. Uh, If I'm an LGBTQ person and active in a religious community, I may feel that I can't bring fully who I am into that space. There's a lot of ways in which in society we are segmented and separated, sometimes for good reason to keep some boundaries, but sometimes in ways that are very do a lot of violence to our own self-understanding and our efficiency. So creating a duct tape free zone, that's what I saw in those communities, right? Mm -hmm. A place where everything was integrated in in really meaningful and important ways and not necessarily in exclusive ways of others. And so that's what I just felt, I I really wanna be able to do that. Again, coming of age, becoming aware of inequality and what was driving the, the social conflict and then feeling that that's the kind of leadership among other models of leadership that were fairly poor, particularly political and otherwise or violent. Uh, this the model of a religious leader who was committed to a group of people and was really a facilitator and participator. That's what I, uh, you know, felt like a call to do.
1: Okay, but before I ask you you know how you know after your um, you know computer undergrad uh, you know how you ultimately ended up at the university uh, can you tell a bit about what the situation was when you were you fled from Guatemala because you know a lot of people are are not aware about what happened. I just recently visited uh Guatemala for the first time ever um, as part of CWS um, and growing hope programs. And then I heard these stories. And, and to be honest, that was the first time I really, you know, was like, wow, um, you know, genocide, uh, indigenous population, war. Can you tell a little bit about how you, you know, experienced that? And, and, um, Unless you don't want to go there, but no,
0: that's great. No, that's okay. that's really appropriate. Uh, first, uh, you know, just acknowledging that uh, one of the blessings of my life has been to to get to know you a little bit more, through our work with Church World Service. I uh, serve on the board of Church World Service mm-hmm. as the vice chair, and and so really grateful for the work that CWS does to be present to people across a wide variety of. Places of disaster, of displacement, and and advocacy, um, and that need is at an all time high globally. You know, with over 100 billion people displaced, both internally and externally around the world, uh, an unprecedented numbers. Mm-hmm. And much of that displacement today, we are becoming increasingly aware of the interconnection between various things that are causing that kind of displacement. You know, that the environment matters, that economic realities matter. Uh, In Guatemala, like most of Latin America, as I said a little bit before, uh, the Cold War was not called in those regions. Mm -hmm. So uh, what was narrated or presented, narratives matter a lot. That's a lot of my commitment is what are the stories Mm -hmm. we tell ourselves? How do we understand what's happening in the world and how do we articulate it and organize it? Mm -hmm. So the way we articulate the, the, the narrative of the Cold War was a conflict between communism and capitalism. Uh, with that very divisive narrative, then movements across the world, uh, uh, particularly in the southern hemisphere, that were basically following independence in many of these regions or the end of one version of colonialism, mm-hmm. you know by shifting to a market-driven colonialism of a different sort. Uh, the resistance to that, you know, the, the, the claim that people were trying to make for their own resources, mm-hmm. their land, Native communities in particularly a kind of calling for change Mm -hmm. that was perceived and viewed through this binary lens of communism or capitalism. And so there was a very violent response most of it fueled through the interest of both Europe and the United States to control and maintain capital and control as they were ceding, at least providing independence to these nations, you know, in Africa and Asia uh, and latin america had been independent for longer but really was still under a large control of the northern hemisphere uh, you know those that 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 desire for self control and uh, you know and determination was viewed as communism right and and violently repressed and that was the case in guatemala and so uh, you know at the end of the of that conflict which ended it, it went from about the 1960s till about 96 is when the peace accords were signed It was clear in the kind of truth-telling that came following that, that over 90%, 90 95% of the atrocities of the killing of the people who died during the conflict were at the hands of the military. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so you had a nation really turning on itself uh, uh, around that. My own experience of it growing up initially, again, you rationalize a lot of those things, was uh, really captured in this idea of Eh, eh, you know, in algo andaban metidos, right? So there's this phrasing that people would use of saying, well, they probably were in some doing something, right? Like the mm-hmm. assumption was that people who were violently killed and there was a lot of experiences of those, uh you know, were probably up to something and if you stayed out of that something, then you would be okay. So as a child, I was growing up seeing, you know, occasional terror, you know, kind of attacks in the city itself. I grew up in Guatemala City. Most of the conflict was in the rural areas. Mm. A lot of the repression was focused on the majority uh, Native communities of Guatemala. Guatemala has the highest uh, level of Native uh, population in the Americas, uh, probably close, perhaps by Ecuador. Uh, And so, and they were the most repressed, right? And Mm. so this was a violent repression against them. Uh, so the first thing, when I was growing up, you would hear sometimes really there was a, 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 a kind of an open field near our house, and I lived in a, in the city itself. And you know, sometimes you would find bodies would be found that had been tortured and then dropped there, mm-hmm. and and you know, so you try to make any sense around that. And again, the phrase would be, "Well, they were probably involved in something, right?" And and mm-hmm. and and excused that way. But it was intended to terrorize, right? Like that was the function of these kinds of things to make sure that people knew not to talk. There's an excellent film done by a friend of mine, uh, Luis Argueta, called "El Silencio de Neto," Neto's Silence, that really captures what it was like as a child. He, you know, he sets the the movie in the '60s uh, and how a child experienced this period. And but it's called the Silence of Neto because that was. That was the power, right? As silence is what you were trying to do. Everybody was concerned about the orejas, the ears. Everybody could be listening. You never knew what you could say or would say because that could lead you into trouble. So I think it was a, a we normalized it, lived with it. You know, we were had a childhood that was happy. My parents provided us uh, the best they could. In retrospect, later on, I realized you know the level of poverty and challenges that we were living with. Uh, but as a kid. I I was grateful to have a good life, and it's, like I said, more coming of age that I began to then really question and understand more uh, complex what what was actually happening. Mm
1: -hmm. Thanks for for sharing that, uh, David. Um, Yeah,
0: maybe one last thing uh, in terms of the precipitating events, right, for my own decision to migrate, Mm -hmm. uh, four of us, uh, there were eight in my family, eight eight siblings, and so four of us, uh, males, uh, there were more males, but four of us left during that period of time, uh, Mm -hmm. One of my dad's cousins, uh, who was one of these pastors in the rural areas, had been killed. A number of others had been, uh, you know, threatened. And so uh, and, and a number of members of my family had to leave fairly quickly mm-hmm. and, and relocate. Um.
1: So why why did not everybody go do you think what, what was the what was the yeah what were the main issues when for this decision I, I'm fascinated by that question always because you know my parents and uh, maybe I told you that story right in Indonesia after you know the world war was over um you know my parents had to choose either they become Indonesians, be part of building up Indonesia or they go back to a country they had never l- really lived in uh, but they are you know, they were Dutch citizens so my my parents had an argument my father wanted to stay my mom wants to go and as a result my life started in the Netherlands and not in <laughs> Indonesia right so so um yeah so I'm always fascinated by those moments
0: yeah um, yeah well you know the, there's a Texan Jackson... The Bible, you know, a wandering Aramean was my ancestor. You know, it's it's a reference to uh, Abraham and the idea that, you know, people are often on the move. It it is the history of humanity in so many ways. Uh, I I think at this time when we have so many people on the move, uh, I, I think part of it is the lack of recognition, actually, that we, you know, humans... Have, the idea of settling in one particular place, building and all those things that, you know, it's not necessarily the only way to be human or to be resident. So I think the decisions about individuals moving are complex and, and and you're right, single individual families will split over decisions because you're considering a wide variety of factors. So it's never monolithic as to mm-hmm. what this is the right decision or that is. Um, I think, you know, for my parents, uh, there was really you know, they, they had made their lives, they, you know, my, my dad was, uh, uh his, his mother had been uh, illiterate, and, you know, but she was remarkable in helping mm-hmm. her family move out of extreme poverty uh, to the point that my dad was able to go to university eventually in his life. He graduated much later in his 40s from law school. Uh, well, he already had kids, but uh, by that point, he was really committed to environmental law, and that's what he was working on. So there was no way he was going to leave. And at that point in his life, you know, uh, by the time I, I left, he was in his 50s, uh, you know, relocating, starting life anew, not knowing the language, all those things wasn't going to be something he 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 was going to do. Uh, so I think for my parents, it was important to stay. And then I had younger siblings that were just too young to mm-hmm. to go on their own. So really, I, I had just, you know, the ones the one of us who left were the ones who were... It, it, right in our teenage late teenage years you know right out of high school a couple of my brothers were in university and and so i think in part it was just more the we were the most vulnerable right as males mm-hmm. in in and in uh the, not, not the most vulnerable but likely you know uh, my my sister was very very young she had, had been born just a couple of years before um and then some of my older siblings were already established, they already were working, and they had their families, so they weren't going to try to relocate. So I think it was the four of us who were single, younger, uh, that, that both uh, had enough naivete, which is what it requires to migrate. <laughs> you never know what you're actually going to go face. I mean, I had no money. I didn't know any English. I was like, I'm just going to go, right? And in my mind, I'm thinking I'm just going to go, you know, serve the Lord and be prepared to be a pastor. Uh, and so thank God for naivete. <laughs> But the decisions in yeah, very yeah. varied, and I think that continues yeah. to be the case today. You know, oh, people make yeah. decisions based on a wide variety of factors, and sometimes I don't know a mix of adventure, hope, mm-hmm. uh, whatever it is that motivates us to go.
1: Right. No th- thanks. Let us make a jump. Then you know when you on your path, you know, studying, and then how you end ultimately ended uh, up at, at this university. So can you kind of give us a summarized version of? <laughs> that journey,
0: <laughs> definitely. So yeah, so I served as president of Pacific School of Religion. We were in mm-hmm. Berkeley. So uh, when I told my kids, uh, they were young at the time, that I was going to become president of a seminary, mm-hmm. youngest said, uh, "Why does a cemetery need a president?" Uh-huh. <laughs> 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 so I got to kind of explain what a seminary is, right? So seminary is the word we use for institutions, educational institutions that prepare, traditionally have prepared clergy, uh, uh, you know, so pastors and religious leaders. Uh, PSR has done that for over 156 years, is the oldest seminary west of the Mississippi. Uh, so it has a long tradition of both preparing clergy, very progressive for each generation, involved in, in, in some really remarkable ways in kind of leadership formation and uh, various social movements over that 156-year history, uh, but also a more expansive understanding of spiritually rooted leaders. So it also prepares people in other areas. So it it, it in, in many ways, it feels like the right path to me like I'm in 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 retrospect I can see you know I've been preparing and and, and lead, you know to to for this role in in many ways but it, I would not that's this is not what I set out to do right mm-hmm. again initially my desire was then to be a religious leader within a community return to Guatemala uh, when I got here it, you know my, my dad was very anxious about me becoming a pastor you know again what he had seen was a lot of hardship on his cousin's lives and then you know even danger and so uh, he insisted that I uh, do something when I first arrived here that came with dental, you know? <laughs> and so he wanted to make sure that there was whatever I would do would pay the bills, right? And, and so my roommate in college, who was from Nepal, uh, uh, loved theater, uh, but he was doing chemistry as a major. I wanted to do theology, so I took lots of theology courses and religion courses, but I was doing computer science and math, and so he always joked, he said, you know, you and I have to have our immigrant majors, right? Like, this is the immigrant majors you have that, you know, just make sure you can uh, have a secure job, provide for your family, and uh, it'll do those things. So, yeah. uh, so I because I had facility with computers and with math and without English, that just worked out a lot better <laughs> initially until I figured it out, Uh But then after that, I did pursue theological Mm -hmm. education. So I I went to seminary in Chicago. And and then while I was there, I just continued throughout this whole time. I became just increasingly aware of people on the move, of uh, the connections between these religious communities, Uh, being in an academic community, trying to understand more fully what it is that we are seeking to do. But connecting that knowledge to the practice of social change became just very early on, this kind of three-part element. So various opportunities came up. I uh, finished my uh, master's program in Germany at the University of Munich, uh, where I was focusing on displacement of uh, Roma people as well as uh, 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 Turkish families that had relocated after the war to rebuild Germany, but were very displaced still within the society. Uh, I then did my uh, a year in Canada working with the Lutheran Refugee Committee, Uh, and that was, uh, really, again, became really central for me, the work of refugee resettlement of working with immigrant communities. And throughout that whole time, I kept paying attention to the narratives, the stories that we tell ourselves, how people were understanding themselves as immigrants, as people on the move and what the dominant narrative was about how they were perceived, you know? And, and then I started to really notice, of course, that this was, and especially just working in, 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 um, Canada, I worked primarily with uh, Guatemalan and Salvadorian uh, refugees who were coming into Canada at the time. This was in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. And um, what I noticed is the way that the sacred text functioned for them, right? So their experience of displacement, uh, of conflict, of having to move, shaped the way they read sacred texts, the Bible Mm -hmm. and scriptures, right? And the other way around their understanding of the Bible shaped the way they understood themselves. So in a culture that perceived them uh, in the U.S. and to a lesser extent in Canada, but still as the kind of stereotypes of immigrants, you know, the counter narrative they held for themselves was the stories of people on the move in the Bible, right? And that's what helped them have a self-orienting understanding that was important. So that just really was where these things kept coming together for me. Um, You know, a lot of things are very much just happens since i met my wife in uh, mm-hmm. chicago at the grad school you know, so we started doing all these moves together uh, and then when she wanted to do her phd and return uh, she decided to come back to the us to do that so we moved to cincinnati where she did her phd at hebrew union college at rabbinical school and after um that i served the congregation there i did computer work for a year then served mm-hmm. the congregation and then once she graduated there's you know fewer jobs for clergy for uh for professors and for clergy so we thought we'll follow her so we ended up in northeast Iowa at a college Luther college right. and I, yeah. uh, there was an opportunity there for me to work so I spent 14 years uh that really was my entry what then. did
1: she study sorry uh, my wife her Hebrew topic?
0: Bible and Judaism study so that's how we ended up in northeast Iowa and mm-hmm. I worked in the school for 14 years uh uh, doing campus ministry co- again, this intersection as well of connecting the areas of strength of the school with social change and religious communities, and and I while I was there, there was a massive immigration raid that uh, destroyed a, a, a nearby town, DePostville, uh, Iowa. At the time, it was the largest uh, single site raid in the country's history, mm-hmm. and for three years, I was involved in the response to that raid and and. And anyway, all of that work and that interconnection when PSR, the school I'm at now, was looking for a new precedent and really kind of living more fully into this direction of that intersection of the academic work, religious communities and social change, they they approached me for the position and, Mm -hmm. you know, been here for eight and a half years.
1: Quick question about what you said in terms of you know that those mobile you know populations that you connected with and, and started to interact with that they when they were reading the Bible they were uh, more leaning towards following the stories of the people on the move as well in the Bible right it, is that the same for you you know is that is that where where you also find recognition and and strength Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when you uh, read the
0: bible yeah. yeah you know there's a phrase that's used sometimes in the study of religion yeah. and, and i'll unpack a little bit but it says all the stories in the bible are true and some of them even happened so the quip there is to say that the the truth of sacred texts is not necessarily in their historicity so i don't have to you know get on an argument as to whether god created the heavens and the earth in exactly seven 24 hour periods like that's irrelevant it was irrelevant to the people who told these stories these are these are narratives that are imaginative about all kinds of things most of those narratives are about people on the move they're people whatever happens to people when they're move. now that's not particular to only christianity most religious traditions narratives are about people on the move you know the hajj which is one of the core principles, pillars of Islam, is about retracing the journey uh, uh, of the Prophet Muhammad out of exile, right? Or, uh, uh, the, the you know, in, in Buddhism, the Siddhartha, Prince Siddhartha that becomes the Buddha, uh, begins that by a migration. Basically, he leaves the confines of his castle or his palace and then walks literally around all of the territory to understand and be exposed to the realities of aging, of sickness, of life. And that's what transforms his own experience and his path to enlightenment. In the very language of religious communities, it's a path to enlightenment. The early Christian movement was called the way, right? A movement, a transition, a journey, the Passover journey, you know, in, in the Jewish community is about Exodus. Um, so, yeah, definitely for me, uh, you know, sacred texts are just. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by narrative. I'm a preacher. That's actually my area of study is homiletics, is the word about preaching. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in the way we think about stories and narratives. Uh, and I'll say something about that later in terms of the the role of narratives and in, 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 in and in social change. But um, you know, at different periods of my own life, uh, uh, you know, growing up in Guatemala in a Jewish community, you know, it was critically important to understand. The traditions of the community, what what is it? What are the patterns that have helped that community stay together, have an identity, maintain that identity through lots of periods of displacement. The history of my family on that side was several displacements, right? That meant we knew little about them specifically, but then these texts, these stories, these narratives become really significant. Um, and they're fascinating to me. I just yeah. spent a couple of days in El Paso where there's been a lot of, uh, you know, it's, it's been sort of... Uh, the symptoms of what's happening more globally around immigration, right? That's not really the border is really just a symptom of really the policies, both internally within the U.S. as well as the U.S.-Mexico border, as well as globally in other places. But you know, spending time there and and uh, I was uh, leading some keynote discussions, and I invited people to focus on the Book of Exodus, and. You know the we we were meeting with folks who are be displaced right now. Um, there was an image that I shared that was uh, went viral last week of a child in a suitcase being pushed across the river, you know, by by their families, this tiny little baby in a suitcase. Again, all the stories in the Bible are true. Some of them even happen. right When a person who's being told that they are illegal, that they're supposedly a threat to the society, that they don't have a right to be in this place, reads a sacred text that has a child moving. When One of the people I did a Bible study with uh, in an immigrant community, it was undocumented, said, Moisés fue el primer mojado. Moses was the first wetback, right? Because he crossed the river against the law that separated the oppression he experienced on one side from the opportunity that was on the other. And he did this against the law, right? Mm -hmm. But that whole text captures all kinds, carries an ability to, to, to give us some imagination about how else do we imagine ourselves. So as an immigrant who's in this situation, to find yourself reading a text that you care deeply about, the sacred text, and seeing yourself, your children, uh, trying to think about, what is it that I'm trying to do? I'm in a very different kind of narrative, a very different self-understanding than the dominant one.
1: Um yeah, I would I would like us to to, to make a jump to, to uh you know eight and a half years ago you, you were um um yeah you're in charge of, of uh you know this big institution looking back at those eight and a half years what are you most proud of and looking forward what keeps you up at night or you know you do you sleep well <laughs> David
0: <laughs> I'm sleeping better these days uh <laughs> Uh, keeps you up at night is the world but um the so yeah when i came here eight years ago again a very progressive institution that had a long legacy of uh advocacy you know started in the late 18 i mean mid 1800s as one of the first educational institutions in in, in california uh, at, at least in the permutation of it following uh the uh, you know the, the 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 california becoming a state formed at a time of, you know, the aftermath of the discovery of gold, the completion of the, you know, cross-continental railroad. And so at that point, uh, you know, the school really, from from its very beginning, uh, began to be on uh, on the leading edge of many different social movements. So early on, it was educating women almost right off the bat in their, you know, 1870s. Before any, most other seminaries would consider educating women uh, for leadership, uh, many of those women became really central in the uh, kind of social activism in in early early years in California. Then, um, you know, they really advocated for a, you know during the Chinese Exclusionary Act, a school focused a lot of their education on educating Asian and Chinese uh, descent individuals and providing leadership to those communities that were being shaped here as they sought to establish. Anyway, that kept going throughout every generation. Uh, uh, LGBTQ inclusion became an an important uh, element of the community in the 1950s, well before even the way we understand uh, that reality uh, uh, was already taking place and that led to the school being the place where a lot of the very early LGBTQ people who are out in, in various mainline denominations being trained here. So the school had that legacy when I came in eight and a half years ago, but it was also at a time of trying to reimagine itself for a new period. And it was facing the challenges that uh, seminaries sit at an intersection, This is what keeps me up at night, between two systems in major disruption, higher education and religious communities. Right. And as I was coming into this place, you know, part of what we needed to do is sort of understand what is it and how are we responding to this? You know, not just the preservation of what has been, even the glory days of this place needed to be really reexamined. We had to do what most immigrants have to do. You know, when you're an immigrant, you're having to decide what of your past are you going to bring into this new place, mm-hmm. and, and and whatever are you going to embrace and 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 discover anew in this community. The reality is you'll never be happy with either one or the other fully. You cannot remain just who you have been and, and succeed, and neither can you just completely adapt. It's just not really doable and maintain integrity with who you are. So that was the work we needed to do, to, to examine and understand what of these legacies is important to carry on and what, what, what will be new. Uh, early on, then we went through lots of different processes of, uh, of discussion, uh, planning, strategic planning, discussions, understanding our, our, our network and our stakeholders and expanding those. And I focus my work on this, what I'm most proud of is to identify our work as needing to be transformed through the people, the program, and the place of PSR. Mm -hmm. So that was the way we organized the work of transformation that needed to happen. The people of PSR had to change. While we were a very progressive institution, we were a predominantly white institution. Mm -hmm. So over the time I have been here, we have become a majority people of color. Community now that's happening in some institutions in the student body just because of demographic shifts, but not necessarily in the area in, in areas of administration, mm-hmm. faculty, and staff. For as the entire institution has become majority people of color, almost my entire executive team are all people of color. And so what we needed to do by changing the people of PSR was then to think about how do we do this work on behalf of our communities, right? And how does the demands of our community shape this work? And so that led us to rethinking our programs. Mm. You know, we are a graduate educational program, a three-year master's is a very expensive investment for very few people. So part of it is how do we take this graduate education and make it much more accessible, so we've introduced some pretty revolutionary uh, approaches to education that challenge a lot of the uh, the things that are or, or, or you know try to find solutions to a lot of the challenges higher education is experiencing uh, you know in trying to prove its value uh, uh, you know attend to the fact that much of higher ed has failed at its basic core of creating large access to people and then the place you know we've reinvented our very campus uh, as an intergenerational learning community so part of it is you know so much segmentation in the society across age religious traditions so our commitment has been to create a very integrated distributed community so we have now on our campus around a very beautiful quad right next to UC berkeley we have a middle school on campus uh, that we partner with. Uh, there is a graduate program from UC Berkeley that works with us on social change and engineering solutions for social change. And mm-hmm. it's this really dynamic, vibrant space mm-hmm. that is at the core of how we think about the future of education. And that's what excites me about the future. Mm-hmm. Getting to this place, you know, so first you change who we are, who we are, and go beyond United Colors of Benetton. This is not just about what we look like, right? Right. Now it's how do we change the way we do education and leadership formation across the life cycle of people. And so that's
1: something for the next eight and a half years. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Definitely, yeah. We uh, have, a, you know, a really ambitious uh, kind of agenda. You know, the next fifteen years in, in, in the world uh, of this intersection of higher education or religious communities will be really quite significant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the number of congregations that are really struggling to identify their future. A lot of traditions are aging, um, but at the same time, there's some really re- transformative movements happening so I think our work I feel we're well positioned Uh, we had to tend to lots of financial challenges as well so there's lots of things that had to be done to clean up and to get the place you know to where we needed it to be to be able to then engage and the key thing again is these partnerships beyond you know uh, Aaron so we uh, that that's what will be definitely shaping the next eight and a half years. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> I, have a, I have a follow-up question about it but I'm going to link it with mm-hmm. the question that I always ask my guests because you know that this podcast is a spin-off of my 100 mile walk to raise awareness and funds to end hunger poverty and injustice um, and you know when I was walking I often talked with co walkers about you know, what's the meaning of life uh, when why am i for God's sake walking <laughs> you know um but then one topic was also about uh what is happening with religion and spirituality and especially with the younger generation so then my question is always what do you see happening among youth the younger generation and religion and spirituality and i would like to link that with a question for you is why should some of those young people come to you your school of religion
0: uh for the last part my hope is we can go to them and that together we can co-create what the uh-huh. future of religion and faith should be about uh-huh. so let me do what a seminary president will do and talk a little bit uh you know and, and introduce a few terms to think through
1: yeah
0: uh i think uh, the last couple of years of pandemic um uh, protest and polarization have really made us aware of uh, what has felt just like an apocalyptic time. I think we, many of us just feel in our gut the sense that, the, you know, this this word apocalyptic, I if you Google the, you know, the, on Google, you can actually see the frequency of use words and the word apocalyptic just kind of skyrocketed. It does this occasionally at different times, uh, you know, whether it's the, you know, in movies, all these different Kind of, you can watch the stories we're telling, right? It's all these, uh, you know, the most popular things. It's Hunger Games. It's all these different things that really Mm -hmm. lead to this time of very uh, post-apocalyptic kind of images of the world. I think it's important to pay attention to an apocalyptic time to answer the question about what is a young emerging generation thinking about around the role of faith, religion, conviction, Uh, and and to pay attention to what the word actually means. So, you know, in, in popular... I you know, images is about the end of the world, right? That mm-hmm. to the extent that people use the term apocalyptic. It actually comes from a Greek word that means revelation, right to that's why the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible is from this word apocalyptic. It means to pull the curtain. The last couple of years in particular have really pulled the curtain whether it's the death of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd, uh, the environmental awareness, we have become clearly aware of the legacies of inequality in this nation. There's a massive amount of reckoning that's happening. We're getting a similar pushback against that awareness, right? But the curtain's being pulled on our interconnectedness to one another as well. So the critical thing about the word apocalyptic in religious traditions, particularly in the Christian tradition, is that you pay attention to what's being revealed Right, what's becoming obvious or evident, but you also pay attention in religious terms to what God is revealing, what God is up to in this moment. That's the place where I'm paying attention, right? I'm both recognizing the importance of naming what is broken, what needs to be addressed, and the inequality. All these things have to be stared straight in the face, and we need to think about addressing them. We also then need to be attentive to what else is emerging. So, what I'm seeing also being revealed is a collective desire on the part of young people and others to see a different way of being, Mm -hmm. you know, to to imagine, to assess value differently than we may have uh, previously, the importance of purpose and meaning to want to take. Now, they're not necessarily running then to establish religious traditions or any other things that the last generation put into place or disassemble. Right So we had a generation that was kind of the builders. They put things together. They established institutions. They did all this stuff. The next generation just kind of threw everything, you know, and and kind of fought against it and revolutionized everything while becoming very established and basically keeping what was there. A young generation is now back into this desire to certainly be critical. I think we well it's beginning to emerge. It's not there yet, and it's only in certain places is a desire to build something new. What excites me what I see and, and connected to religion specifically, we're working at PSR on create uh, on create, u- utilizing technology to facilitate a more distributed network of community, of learning so that we're not just a teaching institution. you know we know how to do leadership, so we're going to teach it to you, but rather a learning network where people are in various locations identifying what leadership is working for them. How is it working? We can teach and learn together in community and center the voices of a diverse emerging generation. So what we're seeing in the diverse emerging generation, and we see it in our work at Church World Service, a vast number of young people that are working in these not-for-profit institutions and the social change agencies who want to see something different At times, it gets expressed in that um, urgency that, you know, for a manager is a little difficult because it's like, you know, change takes time. Uh, And so I think the opportunity is to provide within religious communities, the word religion is about binding, about connecting, about obligation to one another, is to be able to do that. So what I see emerging in a young generation is a desire for it, not always clarity as to what shape it will take. But as this emerges, I think it will be much more distributed, not necessarily all based on centralized models of things, but rather these collectives, these groups that coordinate and socialize with each other across large spectrums because of what technology allows us to do, and then begin to develop enough um, connections to each other to be able to sustain it.
1: I would like to. Oh, this is a difficult one because I'm at at this crossroad. I could go left or right, <laughs> asking you the question. But now let us uh, piggyback on the connecting, because I I what I hope with this podcast is that you know I contribute to you know connecting people to show different perspectives, etc. So one of the questions I always have is the question of my previous guest for you know the present guest. So that's for you. Um, So the question is,
0: what is an area of your life that you would look at and currently say feels pretty transactional that you think could be more relational? Um,
1: And what would it look like if it was more relational? And how might you start to move it in that direction? It's never a binary. um, It's never an all or nothing. And we need some transactions in our life just to make things a little easier and more manageable. When I first started talking about relationality as an ethic, one of my dear colleagues said
0: to me, Oh, I don't want, I don't want to do that with you. I don't want to do that work. I don't want, I can't imagine having to have a relationship with everything. It's exhausting, And she's kind of right. You know, it can be unwieldy, um, which is why we talk about moving toward relationship. So yeah, I would ask the next guest, what feels unhelpfully transactional? What might it look like to be more relational and how would you start
1: to get from where you are to where you want to be?
0: Well, you know, the interesting thing is I really appreciate this question right about uh, in, in, you know, when we uh, there's been a lot of growing awareness uh, about the importance of inner work, the importance of connection to one another. Uh, the wisdom uh, of many of our communities, particularly communities of color, is the importance of relationality. You know, we we know that all of all communities know that. But uh, you know, as uh, one of the impacts of colonization, uh, you know, beginning with uh, kind of the all, all the much of a religious ideology was to divide and conquer, literally, right? So you separate ways of knowledge into segment segment ways of knowledge. You actually disassociate uh, communities by age. You segregate by race. You taxon—you know—create a taxonomy of everything and then assess value to that, whether it's gender or anything. So a lot of those things are being challenged. That you know, whether it's our understanding of gender being much more of a spectrum, our understanding of race shifting from these very binary categories of black and white into much more complex understandings of what that means. So what I'm saying is I see actually a, a social push towards trying to uh, kind of bring, bind back together what's been disconnected. And again, the word religion at its core is this idea of that ligament, of what connects pieces together. Um, there is a text in in, in the Bible, uh, in chapter 37 of Ezekiel, that is a valley of dry bones, you know, so the Prophet is brought to this large dry valley, and he says, you know, there was lots of dry and they were very dry. I mean, that's what it feels like right now. That's a very strong articulation. And it's all these dry bones all over scattered. And the question that in the text the Prophet says is, you know, mortal, can these bones live? I mean, I think that's the question we're wrestling with, whether it is feeling like our democracy is on the verge uh, the world, our environment, that's the question. Can these bones live? And what begins to happen in that vision, uh, the response comes, you know, then first the prophet's like, I don't know, you know God, right? Like, pass the bucket, right? Uh, to somebody else, uh, pass the bucket, I mean, to somebody else. So, um, Then what happens is, you know, they'll prophesy to these bones. And then you have this image that's been really beautifully captured in this African American, uh, you know, uh, spiritual about the knee bone is connected to the shin bone, the shin bone is connected. So it's ligaments begin to build around this. And then there's some connection, right? And these bones. But then there's still a multitude almost of the, you know, the night of the living dead, right? Like zombies, right? And then it's prophesied. And from the four winds, this wind will come and then they will come alive so long answer to say where do i see in the world uh, there is a segmentation a fragmentation of society of disciplines of knowledge of segments of the religious the secular the government so the there's just that is the consequence of a particular way of viewing the world very western That's not the wisdom of many religious communities. The models of leadership of many communities are much more collaborative, much more socially connected. We're discovering or rediscovering that certainly in the work of Native American communities and how they care for the earth. We're thinking about models of leadership within emerging communities, Latino communities, African-American communities, API communities. So the opportunity is for us to really rethink our roles around how things can be brought back together, this ligaments connected, and that new life can be breathed, breath can come into these organizations and institutions. In my own life, I see my particular commitment is to the segmentation of knowledge and the separation of the secular and the sacred in appropriate ways. I'm not talking about enmeshment. I'm not talking about the challenges, actually, on the, the One of the commitments I have is to challenge Christian nationalism, all of these nationalist extremisms and religion that are trying to enmesh the two. So it's not about enmeshing the two, but it's creating, again, these spaces of connection, these duct tape free zones where people can eh, both appreciatively and critically engage all aspects of who they are.
1: Your question for the next guest.
0: Well, you know, uh, there's a question I ask of um, when I have an opportunity to to talk to prospective students for Pacific School of Religion, I certainly ask it of every person I'm interviewing for a position, uh, whether it's uh, a faculty person, uh, a administrative staff, a custodian, uh, anybody who's interviewing with us. One of the questions we ask is, who is your community of accountability on whose behalf? do you do your work uh and that's a question i think that's critical for all of us to constantly wrestle with the work we do the commitments we have uh it must be done for a particular communities. so i'd love to hear from the guests who is their community of accountability what is it Who, who on whose behalf do they do their work
1: Right. um david you i mean you know that i, I feel i'm really passionate about uh, sustainable development goals not because they are perfect but you know just because i like the fact that you know we i think we improve the system in terms of setting goals as a world it's far from perfect but at least more people were involved in mm-hmm. developing them um but um you know unfortunately we are not if we continue like this we are not going to reach those goals in 2030. Um, and I'm going to combine two questions that I always ask and and a growing group of people are saying that you know one of the reasons that we are not reaching those sustainable development goals uh, is because we did not pay proper attention to the ability skills and knowledge that we need as individuals and as community. Um, so they came up with the inner development goals, five goals being thinking relating collaborating in action so the question questions actually that i have for you is one is what do you would like my listeners uh, to know about the sustainable development goals Mm -hmm. and second is what are your thoughts about the inner development goals
0: Mm -hmm. yeah so uh you're probably familiar with the with how the a GDP, the gross domestic product came about you know uh, humans would count the wealth of a nation based on the king's coffers. you know that's how you know the wealth of a of a state or the power of a, of a kingdom. Eventually uh, uh, we were trying to figure out ways to measure the wealth and well-being of a state based on you know not just what the king had but everybody and what was produced. And so one measure of success and well-being became the gross domestic product. We still use that significantly. But as you know, we are beginning to recognize that that is not a very good indicator of the well-being of the people, of a kingdom, of a nation, of a state, Uh, that that really is only one of the measures and actually can vary, especially in late state capitalism, is not a very good measure of the well-being of the people within that community. Uh, because we have separated wealth and the means of production to get very communist here with, you know, some <laughs> understanding of this, we've separated those things. So, yes, there is definitely a need mm-hmm. to integrate and to figure out what we measure. It, it is valuable, I think, in the, you know, the the the, the development goals to to identify set goals and, and try to measure more than just the gross domestic product. Right. Mm-hmm. To figure out how those would advance I do think that some of that, uh, you know, uh, that inner development goals are uh, one significant way to try to articulate those things. Um, uh, And I think the the opportunity is to ensure that we that those that that inner work or that inner development does not then also give in to this very individualistic sense of self and my truth, myself and that idea, you know, that very individualized sense of people, because then it, it just repeats the same model that we have done around economics by commoditizing and personalizing and making choice the top priority in our lives, right? Uh, the opportunity to have that individual choice and, and ability. So in our work at PSR, when I, you know, after I ask students or prospective students what their community accountability is, I say what I commit to as the president of PSR is to do three things in our work that the student will have, that we will blow your mind, embolden your heart, and strengthen your hands. That's our work and its core. So to blow your mind is the need to take the issues we care deeply about and put them into a much larger whole. When it comes to social change, Mm -hmm. have direct service, which we can be good at, food pantries, things like that. We Then sometimes some of us feel called to organizing a little better so we can provide more at scale that direct service and manage organizations. The next level we move to is policy, because at some point we realize that we're kind of really dealing with the babies here at the end and we gotta figure out who's throwing them in the river, right? So we move out to policy. All those levels of change are greatly significant. Right now though, I think we're at a time in which we have to move to the next level, which is the frameworks that inform our policies, our narratives, our stories, how we think of ourselves. That to me is the core work of theological education is placing where we care deeply into these larger whole so i think i'm inviting and challenging i know often you ask your guests to say what what am i challenging people to do Mm is what is the theological work you are doing whatever you call it what are the frameworks the big pictures the narratives that tell us the whole world is engaged in this right now we have never told so many stories right now through streaming through podcasts we have tons of stories humans are telling stories So let's pay attention and see how do we shape those narratives. Our ancestors have done this through their religious work. Many communities of color who have been excluded from traditional forms of education and leadership exercise have captured those stories and those frameworks in their religious traditions. So we need to pay attention to those and actually engage those both critically and meaningfully to embolden our hearts. That's that inner work. You're right. It's just what gives me strength. What's what is a deep well I can draw from, so that I can be resilient. The burnout rate for leaders right now is uh, is, is alarming, and it uh, you know and it has the risk of undermining our ability to, to to make progress, and then to strengthen our hands, we do need to develop skills and uh, new skills and abilities, practices. Uh, religious traditions have been very focused on practices. I mentioned at the beginning, in the Jewish tradition that I was shaped in, uh, it was these narratives, these stories, and these practices that sustain a people from generations of persecution and displacement. It is, so we do need some practices some skills that will help us strengthen our hands.
1: No, thank you. And I really appreciate it. I, I really like the the way that is phrased. So that's that's uh, you know, that's more than a bumper sticker there. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I I also like the the attention that you pay. I mean, it means hard work. You know, to get skills, you need practice. You need to work. You need to put your your, and and, you know, okay. I promised myself not to put my own opinion too much in this studios podcast, but to be the listeners, but I I de- really think that uh, yeah uh, if we would more put more time and and effort in in stuff instead of being you know stay on to the service uh, only hey. David, I would—I still have a couple of questions, but I would like to put this more in a rapid fire because, because um, you know, time is is uh, catching up on us. Um, are you ready for some quick answers? Let's do it. Okay, let me look at my uh, list to see what you're I. Interviewing really a preacher. Like to... You're interviewing a <laughs> preacher. Come on, you're not going to get short <laughs> answers. Well, we'll try. <laughs> okay. If you know, music is very important to me, so I always ask a question about music as well. If I would ask you to mention a piece of music or a song um, that embodies for a big part who David is, who what you are about, which song or piece of music would it be and why?
0: Mercedes Sosas, uh, who's an Argentinian singer, solo le pido a Dios. I, o- I ask only of God. That's uh, uh, uh I'll just uh. Try to translate at least one of the verses. Basically, I ask only of God that I am not unmoved by suffering, that the dryness of death will not find me empty and alone without having done what was needed. Uh, There's a line in the song as well uh, where she very powerfully uh, talks about or, uh, you know, she goes through and say that I may not be unmoved by suffering, by deception, by war, this monster that tramples uh, the you know the uh, the humble uh and so that captures my life I, I, I that's what I ask of God that I not be unmoved by the suffering of the world and that I live to do what I can
1: and, and I don't know if you are aware but for the listeners who are or might also not be aware you know we've made a, a playlist uh, on Spotify, uh, if you search for hashtag walk, talk, listen, you see all the songs that uh, are picked by my guests. And I, I think it's really awesome to, to, look at the, to listen to a wide variety of, of, of songs. Um, David Steve Hartman of CBS in the US examines how one simple act of kindness creates a ripple effect. Um, I have two questions to you about this. One is, what do you think about, you know, The potential uh, rippling effect of a simple act of kindness, and second is, um, if I would ask you right now on the spot to commit to one simple act of kindness for you know within this week, uh, what would you do?
0: Um, I I definitely think that um, you know the uh, kindness uh, and the actions uh, that we do have repercussions in people's lives. I know some of your previous guests have talked about just looking back at the lives their own or the lives of many people who have transformed the world has often begun by a single uh, kindness, uh, recognizing somebody's voice or leadership, uh, an encouragement, uh, uh, support that then people try to pay back afterwards. I certainly have seen that in the Uh, you know the students who come to us were incredibly transformative individuals and many of them because of the way our education is shaped part of your application is actually trying to articulate your own sense of call right like what is it that has shaped your desire and again this your community of accountability is so I definitely think that that's really critical Um, especially if it's combined with systemic realities right that's always the risk is anything that gets too individualized to you know, needs to be kind of complemented with that systemic reality. Uh, if I were to do an act of kindness this week, uh, uh, I'm about to go into our commencement. Uh, the act of kindness is uh, going to simply be to try to mirror back to any of our students and others what I see in them and their gift and the possibility and the hope I feel for the world because of who they are and what they have Uh, how they have shaped their life and responding to their call.
1: David, is there a question that I should have asked you and I didn't?
0: My favorite food? Uh, you asked nothing about food. Uh, That's true. Uh, yeah. So this is a very heady conversation, and if we don't pay attention <laughs> to the body, <laughs> I know, I like so, it. I actually I, I should
1: introduce the question because food yeah. is also very important for myself. I don't know why. That, so what is your favorite food?
0: Well, you know my favorite food, uh, uh, both for the taste, but also because of the uh, what what it represents for me is mm-hmm. called fiambre. So Fiambre is made in Guatemala uh, for uh, Day of the Dead, uh, or All Saints, in in November, uh, late October. And it has a tradition in Guatemala that it started out after a massive earthquake in the 1700s where, you know, everything was destroyed. And so people were out on the streets and they just sort of cobbled together everything that they had into this big, you know, small gets board all in one thing. But what was interesting about it is that, you know, the society during the colonial period was very, dive, very segregated between the Spaniard descent and the native communities. But because of the earthquake, everybody was out on the streets and there's elements of all the foods from these various communities together. So in a, fiambre, a, a for all saints, every family has their own version. You know, they'll put stuff together. And what you do traditionally is you go visiting during the day around to everybody. And you bring part of your fiambre, and you take part of their fiambre, and then you keep combining. So you end up with this really <laughs> very large smorgasbord uh-huh. of all these different pickled things together, and you uh-huh. have kind of things that are uh, European origin, Native community origin, and mm-hmm. that. So that's my favorite food in part because it reflects my very DNA makeup, <laughs> yeah, yeah, got it. My life commitment, and as you get the theme here going, is connection, relationship. Yeah.
1: So. <laughs> Great, I, I. I... I don't think I had it. So, so when I was there, so I yeah, it's only there. It's only
0: only on that day. It's only on the, made okay. it's not a common dish. <laughs> got it. Got
1: it. Got it. Okay. Hey, David, thank you so much for your, for your time and your wisdom and your you know uh, willingness to yeah uh, spend some time and, and uh, talk with me. Um, I wish you all the best with everything you do. Um, yeah, thank you so much.
0: Well, thank you.
1: Listening to walk, talk, listen. Please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.